Welcome to the Pencil Skirt Society. It's Amy Bolding and Amanda Dalrymple. And each week, we're going to talk to women just like you and me who are building their businesses, improving their relationships, and working on themselves each and every day. That's right, and we're so happy you're here with us. Let's go ahead and get started. Amanda, what's up, girl? Amy, how are you doing? Well, we made it. It's been a crazy week, but we're here. Oh, my gosh. It has been the craziest week, especially for you. Texas, oh my God. come on. All over the news. Texas lost its mind. I have no idea what is going on. It's like 70 degrees right now. It's beautiful outside. <laughs> of course it is. You wouldn't know that, you know, five days ago you guys had, the, like, the world's worst snowstorm. Yeah, I just saw a meme a couple hours ago that said um, Texas is trying to pretend like it didn't try to kill us three days ago, and <laughs> that cannot be more accurate. But we're here. Oh I want to thank I want to thank everybody for the patience. Um, you know, obviously this episode was supposed to drop on Thursday, but without power and without um, you know internet connectivity, it just wasn't possible. So thank you for listening and for hanging in. Um, you know, now you get two episodes this week. So that's pretty cool, right? Oh my gosh, that's so cool. And, um, we, both of these episodes, you guys, they're going to be so amazing. Um, you know, a couple, one of them is going to probably make your jaw drop. Another one, you're just going to be completely fired up. And so we're so excited for you to hear them. Yeah, yeah. I've been really excited. Well, I'm always excited about our episodes, but I've been really excited about this one, especially because, you know, I say it in the episode, but I literally thought that you sent me a typo when you first told me about Carissa. And yep. I still laugh about it now. Um, and it's not even, la- it's, she laughs about it. You know, she's got a good sense of humor about it, but, you know, to, to fully remove your stomach, that's, that's something else. And so I'm, I'm excited about it. Oh my gosh, me too. It's going to be amazing. I can't, I can't wait for y'all to hear it. Yeah. What, you know what, what's been going on with you? Because I haven't even talked to you really this week. I mean, because, you know, no cell service and whatnot. Right. Well, so it's been crazy. Um, my husband actually ended up, we got it. He got a vasectomy on Friday and that has (sighs) been something for the books. (laughs) It's one of those things that you're never really prepared for because you just don't know really what to expect, but you know, he he hasn't really been able to hold or pick up our kids. And that's been a little bit rough on him because, you know, we have a three-year-old and almost one-year-old. And they're both so used to, you know, daddy picking, picking them up all the time and swinging them and having all this fun. And so he, you know, on the emotional side of it, he's been having a little bit of a rough time with it because, you know, the kids will run up to him and be like, daddy, hold me. And he, he just can't do it. So that's been a little bit rough. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it's. I think they said like recoveries, you know, like a weekend, but I know a few friends yeah. who have said, you know, there were a couple more days added on to that. Yeah, it's been, it's been something else and it, you know, it kind of takes you back and I'm sure other mamas out there can relate. You know, if you have a C-section, you're, especially with a second baby, your oldest baby is like, mommy, hold me. You always hold me, you know, what's going on? And, and Aww. you just because it hurts and you're trying to heal. And so you can, it's something you can totally relate to, but it makes it, you know, it still is really pretty tough. Yeah, and I hate to say it, but it's almost like, well, now you get to experience what I went through multiple times. So, right. 
I, I'm trying to oh get my mine that way, in that direction. I'm trying to get him to start thinking about it. And he's just like, nope, nope, nope. And I'm like, come on, come on. I feel crazy. like it's probably just like an emotional decision for them, you know, like that's kind of a big deal. And, you know, just on like the emotional side for women too, man, there's that little part of you that's always like, do I mm-hmm. want to have more kids? Like maybe, maybe I just want to have one more. I mean, I definitely don't. And I know that like in my heart of hearts, I know that, but there's always just that little part. So that's been kind of odd trying to get used to that. Just that, okay, like, no, you can't. But, you know, the kiddos and I, we've been getting a lot of bonding time these last couple of days. And um, it's been it's been good. Um, it's been hard for him, but it's been, you know, good for the bonding part of it. But you guys, if you are out there, if you're a mama, um, if your husband has gone through this, let us know. We want to know, was it emotional for you? Was it hard for him? Um, we want to hear those stories, too. Yeah, I mean, I can I can relate to what you're saying. Um, we want to hear about it. I want y'all to tell us about what your experiences are, because I think, I think a lot of us feel that way. You know, we feel like we're ready, like we're done. You know, I know I'm there and I'm like, I would like a permanent solution that is for both of us, you know, fleeting. It's not like a long-term solution. And um, if you've got your husband to like walk down that aisle, so to speak, will y'all tell me how, send me all your tips. What are you bribing with? (laughs) Yes. Give me some advice. (laughs) Yeah. I was going to say, I think the only advice I have for you is I just said, well, do you want to have another baby? Like when my youngest son is screaming in his room and he's just like, nope. (laughs) And we kind of just went from there. (laughs) It was an easy, easy choice for him. Yeah. It's like, well, you've got two choices, buddy. Yeah. Right. No, I hear you. I I hear you. But can I tell you something that I've been dying to tell you? Okay. Yeah. So this week. I obviously had a lot of time on my hands and thank God for Audible. And I had like three books on the shelf that I was needing to read. Um, and I just read a really good one. And for anybody that's in sales or, you know, in an MLM company like me and Amanda, you know, we're with Arbonne. I think we talked about that a little in our last episode. This was a great read and actually it could really be for anything. And it was called the, the four color personalities by Tom Schreider. He has a nickname called Big Al in the middle, but it was so informative. And I, at first I was so skeptical. I was like, well, I don't know. You know what I mean? And um, it really just okay. talked about how there's like four color personality charts. So there's red, there's blue, there's green, and there's yellow. And basically the way he explains it is like you have to speak to them in their own language. And each of, of those color personalities has their own language and they have specific words that speak to them. And it was just, it really kind of blew my mind. And I was like, what? And I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to like, you know, point out myself or point out my children or my husband, but oh my God, they were like spot on. Spot really? On. So like, tell me, tell me a couple of the, of the colors. Like what's an example? Yeah. Okay. So like for, for myself, I'm a blue. So a blue is like, all about the fun. I'm not into doing anything. If I'm not having a good time doing it, I'm not going to do it. Like most, most of the time. And they're the people that, you know, are really into doing things that excite them and they don't really like a lot of mundane and they're talkative. And one of the things that he tells you is like a blue person, you'll know a blue person because they'll go see a movie and they'll be like, Oh my gosh, this is the best movie. And here I am telling you about this book that I just read. I'm like, Oh my gosh, this is the best book. So they're really talkative. They can talk to anybody. And that's my oldest daughter. And then um, there is the red personality. So the red personality is like the 
take no names, you know, kind of push through everything. I'm the successful person. I'm all about the money and, you know, the bonuses and the rewards and the awards. Um, you know, kind of like a Donald Trump personality, if you think of like a Donald mm-hmm. Trump. Um, and then there's the yellow personality and they're the helpers. And so, for example, like if you know somebody that's a yellow, they're, they're, they're kind of the people that are environmentalists or teachers or people, you know, they just really care about other people and their well-being. And so their motivation is, you know, how can they help people? And, um, then there are the green personalities, which is West and, I think Wes probably and Harley fa- uh, fall into this category. Sadie's a for sure red. Um, I'm talking about my kids. For those of y'all that don't know me, I've got three girls. But um, Wes, it's so funny. Uh, don't tell him I said this, guys. But but he said greens are the boring personality type because they're so analytical and they have to, you know, look up every single detail. They want facts. They want numbers. I could care less about that, to be honest with you. I'm like, just get to the point. Um, and I guess that's why we work together so well. But yeah, it's it's really crazy. And honestly, once like once you learn that, you can actually look at somebody's social media profile and you can pick out what they are. Like I was trying it this morning. I was like, holy crap. I think this person's a red. I think this person's a green. And so you're not just, you know, even if you're trying to make friends with somebody, it's, this is helpful because then you know kind of where to start in your conversation. And so I, it's a quick read. Um, it was a quick listen. I think it was an hour and a half long. I would definitely look into it, even if you can't get the book. It was, oh I don't know. Well, and cool. like, as you were explaining these, I was literally thinking of people in my head, like, oh, my sister's this. Oh, my husband's this. Like, I could mm-hmm. pick people out as you were explaining them. That's so crazy. Mm-hmm. I feel like also you could really apply this with so many aspects of your life like I think about you know you go to work every day and you have these colleagues that you spoke to the same way for whatever five years and Mm -hmm. you know just knowing what color they were how they work or how their mind works you know that person's a blue they love fun and exciting things I'm going to change up how I approach them or how I talk to that specific person and it would be crazy to kind of do that as an experiment and see if they change or they flourish Mm -hmm. or they uh, they change how they talk to you back. That would be so cool. Yeah, I'm going to try it this week. I literally, every person that I'm going to reach out to, I am going to try it. And I'm going to see how it goes. What do you think you are? And what do you think Philip is? Um, I would say that I am definitely a blue as well. Um, I love everything fun and exciting. I hate monotony. Like, if you tell me to do the same thing at my job every single day, I will be bored to tears. <laughs> I just oh have my God, to have forget change. It. I have to have fun. Um, if I'm going to do something, I'm, you know, I just want to know what exciting things are we going to do while we're there. So definitely mm-hmm. a blue. And I think it's so funny that you mentioned Wes is a green because as soon as you started ex- explaining that, I was like, oh, my God, that's totally still up 100%. He yep. is the exact same way, totally analytical. That's kind of just how his brain works. Um, and he is totally the guy that fact checks everything, wants to look it up, make sure he knows what he's talking about. So that's so funny that I feel like we're the same. That's why they're besties. Y'all, our husbands have been best friends since childhood. Isn't that wild? So crazy. That's crazy. We'll have to post yeah. a picture of them together when they were little. <laughs> oh, oh, yes. Okay, so I'm going to do that. I'm going to put it on the on the pod page. Um, yeah, I think that would be really cute. They are um, actually kind of adorable when they're together. 
especially when they're shooting guns and they're going into all these details. I'm like, okay, can we just get to the guns? Can we just get to the shooting, you know, or whatever it is that we're doing, but they're, they kind of geek out together and it's really fun to watch. And that must be why you and me hit it off. I think so. We, I mean, honestly, Amy and I, from the moment we met, you guys were like, okay, we're going to be best friends probably forever. (laughs) We just knew, um, we just, we get along so well. And it's just so funny that we get along and then our, obviously our husbands are best friends too, but so cute. Mm-hmm. It's actually probably pretty dangerous that we are starting to do this on the podcast because, you know, for those of y'all that just are, just want to get to the episode, you know, it may, or the interview, it may take a minute because we're going to probably talk your ears off, but we hope you like it. We hope it's interesting <laughs> and that you learn something. Um, but I wanted to talk a little bit about Arbon real quick because let me tell you, I couldn't shower for a few days and I have had to use my micellar water. I've already been using it. If y'all haven't followed any of my stories stop washing your face so many times a week um even if you have oily skin i have really oily skin um you want to use something like micellar water because it um, protects the moisture barrier on your skin and arbonne has a really really good one it's got a lot of vitamins um, that are included in it and um it came in really handy when i couldn't take a shower oh my gosh i can't imagine because you're still getting all that gunk out of your pores and you're still being clean without physically taking a shower i love that Exactly. I mean, my hair wasn't clean, but you know, everything else was fine. It was, I was glad it, I had it for sure. I could still, you know, put on my moisturizer and stuff and cause you need it, especially in the cold. I don't put on moisturizer as much as I used to, but the cold weather, I probably have had to use Arbonne's moisturizer less than any other moisturizer because it is so good. Um, but I did pack it on this week and cause it has the sunscreen in it. And you talked a little bit about that too. You had some great sunscreen tips. Oh my God. I am such a sunscreen geek. I, yeah. So I did a little live on the benefits of sunscreen and you guys, if you are using a chemical sunscreen, listen, that is totally better than nothing. Um, but I told, I recommend doing a uh, mineral sunscreen because that sunscreen will actually go and sit on top of your skin. And I'm not going to talk your ear off about this. I promise. But basically the UVA and UVB rays will hit that sunscreen and bounce off. And if you're using a chemical sunscreen, the rays actually go inside of your skin and sit there for a little bit, and then um, they're eliminated via heat. And so that's what we don't want. That's where you're getting all the damage from in the elastin fibers and um, deep down into your skin. And so if there's one piece of advice you ever learn from me, please, please use a mineral sunscreen. That is my only pitch. <laughs> Yeah, I've never, I've never heard of that. And I think it's really cool because, well, I think it's really cool, but I think it's awesome to know that because this entire time I wasn't aware of that when I was putting sunscreen on my children either. I didn't know about that. Yeah. You know, and their mm-hmm. skin is so sensitive. Yep, absolutely. And Arbon makes a, we actually have an SPF for kids. It's in the ABC kids line. Um, and it's a mineral sunscreen as well. And it's, so good. I've been using it on both my boys. Oh my gosh, I've been using it on Bridger, my youngest, since he was, I don't know, probably three months old. Um, and so we've been using it on him and our three-year-old and they, I mean, they don't get sun, sunburns. It's really protective. Um, we recommend reapplying it every couple hours just to be safe, but it's been a miracle worker for us. Yeah, I can't wait to try it. I'm definitely getting it this summer. I mean, we're not at the beach every day anymore, but we will be at the river a lot. So I'm glad that I know mm-hmm. about that now. Y'all have to follow us on our personal pages so that you can see all of this good information. We talk a lot about skincare, obviously, um, and health and nutrition. So make sure if y'all aren't following us, we'll follow you back. We love to interact with everybody on social media. So 
yeah, we actually like to be social and social. We always joke about that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'll comment on every single picture that you have. I mean, I do take out time of my day to do that. Like if I have somebody that's, you know, showing me love back, like I'll go and I'll comment on your pictures. I'll go in like all your stuff. So yeah, y'all should check it out because I mean, it's real good information. It's, it's stuff that I think all of us should know. And I probably, I wish I would have known it a lot sooner, you know, you know, to prevent damage that's already happened, but um, you know, it's, it's good information or, you know, just do the research yourself. If you don't like our pages and don't want to follow us, um, you could just do, do the research because you'll find out so much. It's in such a short amount of time. It's really, you'll benefit yourself and your family so much. Oh my gosh, you guys. And everything is vegan, non-toxic, it's clean. And, um, if you've ever heard me speak about it, it, it changed my life and my son's life. I won't get into it. And so that's why um, we are completely just converted over it to it now. But, oh, my gosh, Amy, did you see my story the other day? I actually tried the skin elixir. Um, so for those of you who don't know, the skin elixir is your vegan collagen for hair, skin, and nails. And I've always just mixed it in with other stuff. Like I will mm-hmm. put it in with a fizz or um, just something else. And so I was like, you know what? I'm going to try this by itself because it's supposed to have like a berry flavor. And it is so good it tastes like if you were to kind of just infuse water with berries mm-hmm. so like maybe strawberry and blackberries maybe um yeah I'm drinking one right now it's so good so if you guys ever need to just like have a like a really good tasting water get the skin elixir and mix that in with it because it's delicious yeah it's like a very faint strawberry i agree it, it's there's some other berry in there other than strawberry but it's yeah. super sweet and I don't like super yeah. sweet drinks. And so I, I do usually mix it in with my fizz, but I ran out of fizz the other day. Um, the mail was delayed. And so, you know, I was drinking it by itself. And um, I mean, and it does wonders for your skin. I feel like my skin looks different when I don't have it. Oh, yeah. That's one of those things where everyone's always like, well, you're you're going to know if something's working. If when you stop it, you can notice a difference. And if I miss this for a couple of days, my skin starts to get dry and it feels rough. And um, so I can totally tell the difference when I'm not using it. Yeah. I feel like I have almost like a pregnancy glow when I am using it. Yeah. I'm not pregnant. I'm not pregnant guys. I swear. But yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, everybody, just so you know, and I don't know if that's everybody else's experience with it, but I, I can tell the difference. I literally feel the difference. So I agree with you. I think that's definitely one of my favorites as well. Oh, yeah. Me too. I'm loving it. Like I said, I'm drinking one right now, and I don't go a day without it. So good. And now I'm I think I'm going to just start drinking it by itself. So good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, then you get to spread out, like, all the good drinks throughout the day because I try to limit myself to one fizz a day because otherwise I'll be bouncing off the walls. Y'all seen some of my dancing on TikTok videos. I've only done one or so two, good. and they're not even that yeah, They're not that much. It's just a little bit. But, yeah, I have to limit myself. But, so... We need to talk about this episode with Carissa because I was re-listening to it as I was editing it. And her story is just so incredible. And it really, it blew my mind all over again. And I can't even believe it. I'm so thankful that you, you've known her for a long time, right? Like you've known her for a while. I, I just can't wait for y'all to hear it. Tell us a little bit about Carissa and um, kind of introduce her to everybody because she's just amazing. I know, I know. Um, she's incredible and she's been incredible. Like you said, I've known Krista for a long time. We actually went to college together. We had the same major. Um, and so we were in a lot of the same classes together and she was incredible then, you guys. She's incredible now. 
And she is basically just this Wonder Woman who just happens to be missing a stomach, which Amy will tell you this over and over. When I texted her that, she's like, uh, what? <laughs> is that a typo? Did you mean to say that she's missing her stomach? Because that's not something that you hear about every single day. But she has gone through this really intense journey um, of not only really saving her own life, but she's been gaining these new perspectives along the way. So let's have a listen to Chris's journey. Yeah, let's jump right in. And if you guys want to see a picture of what that looks like, we did post that on the um, Instagram page today. So y'all go take a look. And yeah, let's jump right in. Can't wait. Here we go. Carissa! Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, I'm like, I'm excited to be a part of your podcast and to um, listen to the other episodes too. So I'm excited for what you've done this year. We are so excited to have you. You have been such a game changer and we're going to kind of explain that a little bit more when we get into detail, but we're just so excited to have you. Thank you for taking the time to be with us. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Amanda, when she first told me about you, she was so excited, and she's just been so inspired yes. by you. She's been following your blog and following your story. You know, I meant to ask, how do y'all know each other? Amanda oh my gosh, so in our college yes. days. <laughs> yes, Shadron State College in Nebraska. Yes. Shout out. We've known each other forever. <laughs> longer, longer than I'd care to share. Probably not. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I know, it made yeah. me feel old, but yeah, no, we've back, known each other back for in a our long Nebraska time. Days. Yeah, we hung out in college, and uh, we actually took a lot of the same classes, and so we we hung yeah. out a lot. Mhm. We both worked at the same drugstore briefly, I believe. Did we not both work at yep. Peterson Drug for a little bit? Yeah, we did. <laughs> we did. Oh my gosh, reminiscing! It's amazing. Stocking Valentine's candy and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> That's cool that y'all have known each other for so long and that you've maintained the relationship. And I guess Amanda's kind of seen your journey kind of from start to now. Yes, absolutely. So like I said, Chris and I, we've been friends for a really long time. And she had some things that she has gone through. And, you know, we're going to talk about that here in a minute. But it's just such an inspiring story on so many levels. And um, she's really bringing awareness to to what we're going to talk about. So I'm I'm really excited about it. So tell tell us a little bit about, you know, what's going on, what's been going on the last few years and kind of um where you're at now. Yeah, so um it's kind of it's a crazy story. Um uh, almost exactly 2 years ago today, I found out that I have a genetic mutation of my CDH1 gene. Um and that leads to an increased risk of um, one, a certain type of stomach cancer and a certain type of breast cancer. Um, the way I found out was kind of crazy, and I wasn't really expecting to get this news. And so as soon as I, as soon as I got this information from a genetic counselor, I started doing a ton of research online because that's just who I am <laughs> as a person. I always <laughs> want to try to figure out everything immediately. Um, and I just found that there wasn't there wasn't much that I could find as far as other people who had this. There was a couple of blogs and um, you know lots of lots of medical research, but I wanted to hear from people who had already 
gotten the same diagnosis that I had and what their experience was like through that journey. And I was able to find a few, a handful, and was able to start following those people on social media. And it was such a relief to me to see somebody else go go through something because there was nobody here locally that I could talk to about any of this. Um, So that then inspired me to start sharing my story online um, on my Facebook page. And I then also started a blog to kind of talk my way through this journey, what my diagnosis was, and how I was planning to kind of tackle it. And um, so that is how Amanda came to discover what I was going through. Um, It took me a little while to get up the courage to share all of that information. I think um, I found out in January of 2019. And I think my first blog post went up on my mom's birthday, which was April. Um, So it took me a few months to kind of like wrap my head around it and figure out um, how much I wanted to share and how to go about it. But so that was, that was sort of everybody else's introduction to this journey um, of CDH1. (laughs) And, you know, through, through this process, I was then able to find um, lots of online internet friends. It's been amazing. Social media has been such a gift to me in regard to all of this because I've been able to join Facebook groups and I follow a lot of different people on Instagram. Like hashtags were such a help in me finding people and being able to connect with other people with CDH1 mutation um, or hereditary disease, gastric cancer, all of that type of stuff. Um, So now I feel like I've got this huge community around me of you know, brothers and sisters that are going through the same thing. So it's been a huge gift. Did you feel like you wanted to fight right away or did you have mixed feelings about it? Because you had some big decisions to make. Yeah. So I guess to to backtrack a little bit further into the story, just to give you some context about how I got to this result in the first place. Um, So the month prior to me getting those results, so December 2018, I went to just do my annual exam with my, you know, gynecologist, and I just happened to have a very proactive doctor at the time who was starting to encourage her patients to do some genetic counseling um, or genetic testing. Primarily her concern was things like, you know, BRCA1 and BRCA2 that lead to an increased risk of breast or ovarian cancer. And so she just wanted um, her patients to sort of determine if they had that risk, if they were in that risk category or not. Um, So she asked if I would be willing to do the genetic testing. um, And I said, sure. And as I was then talking, so the genetic counselor I actually worked with was out of state. Um, And so all my genetic counseling was over the phone. So I did the blood work and I then had to do some follow-up calls with this genetic counselor to get my family history and all of those kinds of things nailed down. And after she and I spoke um, on the phone two separate times, she said, you know, I think it would be good for you if we do your full panel, just because I I don't have a really solid view of my family history. Um, I don't know my mother's father's side of the family. We never really knew growing up. Um, And so that left a big chunk of the puzzle sort of as a question mark for me. Um, So she said, do you want to just do a full panel test for, you know, all genetic mutations or do you want to just stick to BRCA? And I thought, well, sure, let's just do all of them, you know, better safe than sorry, right? Um, And then 
she called me in January to tell me that I came, I tested negative for BRCA1 and BRCA2, but that I had tested positive for CDH1, a CDH1 mutation. And I was so relieved to hear, you know, the, the BRCA mutations get a lot of coverage, as they should. They're very, they're, you know, aggressive and deadly. Um, and so they get a lot of coverage. And so I was so relieved <laughs> to, to, not, to not have a BRCA <laughs> mutation that I was like, well, that's fine. I mean, like, nothing, what could be worse than that? And then she told me, um, <laughs> then turned out uh, the, the CDH1 mutation, she said, you know, it, it increases your risk of hereditary diffused gastric cancer to women up to 83%. Um, wow. And, and also lobular breast cancer, which is, a, which is a different type of breast cancer than BRCA. Um, BRCA is ductal breast cancer. Um, CDH1 increases your risk of lobular breast cancer to the same amount about, uh, as BRCA, so about 53%, still over half. Um, so I was, as you might imagine, completely speechless <laughs> getting that information. I, I'd never heard of a CDH1 mutation before. Um, and then she went on to say, you know, the uh, recommended treatment for hereditary diffused gastric cancer is a total gastrectomy, the removal of your stomach. And so you have to understand that I got all of this information in about five minutes as far as wow. like not even knowing what CDH1 was, finding out that I had it, finding out that my my risk of cancer was astronomical. Um, and finding out that the, 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 you know, path to treatment would be to remove like, you know, a vital organ. <laughs> so it just wow. caught me completely off guard. Um, and the average age of onset for hereditary diffuse gastric cancer is 38. So obviously some people get it much sooner, some people get it much later, but that's sort of like the middle ground. And at the time I was 34. So it was time to get real serious about it, even though I had just found out. Um, and so I was completely shocked um, <laughs> at the idea and kind of just sat here. I work from home. Um, and so I, I was just kind of sitting in my office at home thinking, wow, I don't know. I don't know how to process any of this information. I wasn't prepared to get it. So I hadn't even really told um, anybody. I had told one friend and I had told my dad sort of just like in passing that I had done this genetic test and, and I'd be getting the results at some, I don't even think either of them knew I was getting the results that day. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So I was just completely overwhelmed as you might imagine, and just unprepared for what I, what I just received. Um, you know, I talked, I spoke with the genetic counselor. We, she went over all of the risks of everything then that was included. We talked about the lobular breast cancer. We talked about the hereditary diffuse gastric cancer, um, the, the, the genetic component, what the odds are of, you know, passing it down to children or future children, those kinds of things. It, so it was a lot to take in all in basically one half an hour call. And so I sort of wow. just went a little bit numb <laughs> probably for the rest of the day. I just sort of sat and thought, wow, I don't even know how to tackle any of this. Um, but to give you a little bit further context as to why I made the decisions I did moving forward, um, my mother actually died of diffused gastric cancer in late 2015. So she had about three years before I got this, almost exactly three years actually, before I got this information, um, my mom had died of diffused gastric cancer. And 
as you know, we were working with her oncologist and her surgeon and those, you know, those people that were involved in her treatment, um, they both told us that this type of cancer is so rare. This is a fluke within her body. Specifically, there's not, there's not a genetic component to this. Most people that get diffuse gastric cancer are in their 80s or live in Southeast Asia where they have a lot of, you know, they have high mercury um, content in their diet because they eat a lot of fish, um, that it's not common, you know, in a 50-something-year-old woman from the Midwest. So essentially, it was something in her body malfunctioned. Don't worry about it. And so, you know, we were just kind of like blissfully ignorant for three years. And, and that's why I was so shocked by my diagnosis, because I didn't know. I, I had thought for the last three years that there was no genetic component to what my mom had gone through and hadn't, hadn't even considered that that was anything that I was going to need to be concerned about in the future to then learn all of a sudden that I have like quite literally a ticking time bomb in my body. Um, and so it was a lot to process <laughs> all at once thinking about watching my mom who she had gotten diagnosed um, with stage four stomach cancer in April of 2015 and she passed away right before Christmas um, of 2015. And so it was very quick. It was very wow. aggressive, and it was um, hard to watch, and I'm sure even harder to experience for her. And so I knew as quickly as that day. I didn't know what it was all going to look like, and I didn't know um, how it was all going to work. But as soon as that genetic counselor told me that I would have to have a total gastrectomy um, in order to sort of beat the odds of this cancer, um, even though I didn't have all the information yet, I just thought, well, that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> I've already seen the alternative, you know what I mean? And um, if right. I have the opportunity to do something differently, then it would be crazy of me not to take that. Um, so then moving forward, as I learned more about why why the the risks are so high and why that is the course of treatment, you know, it became a little bit easier to understand. Um, a diffuse gastric, a diffuse cancer is different than a localized cancer in the sense that it does not form like one, like lump, like a tumor, like you would normally think of um, when you think of a cancer that shows up on a PET scan or that shows up with an endoscopy or anything like that. So a diffuse cancer sort of infiltrates an entire organ and um, diffuse gastric cancer in particular acts like almost like a spider web within your stomach lining. And so it means that it's quite literally like trying to catch a needle in a haystack. And so as I did, I did two endoscopies before I had my surgery and they, they're called a topographical endoscopies. So they take like a hundred different biopsy samples of the inside of your stomach. Um, and they're just looking to see if they find any cancer cells. So they're just taking kind of randomized, you know, biopsies from the entire organ and um, you know they came back totally clear um, but the risk there is that you could be you know pinching off a piece of tissue right next to a cancer cell but because you didn't get that cancer cell it doesn't show up so it's very hard to catch in time and most people don't unfortunately don't get diagnosed with a diffuse gastric cancer until they're stage four and once it starts 
kind of multiplying is very aggressive. So you could go from a clean endoscopy to stage four in six months. And that's the recommendation. The recommendation is to get an endoscopy every six months if you opt not to have the total gastrectomy. Um, so things can change very quickly. And, you know, as I continued to learn all of this information, as I did some research, all it did was kind of solidify that decision for me. And I was at that point just trying to figure out how quickly I could get this done, you know, what steps needed to be taken. And that sort of started the path <laughs> that I was on um, for the last two years. So that's like the, oh my God. the Cliff Notes version, but I that realized it's not very short. <laughs> And when Amanda texted me and told me, I have this great, amazing guest that I want you to talk to, she removed her stomach. I thought for sure it was a typo. I was like, okay, that's all she meant. <laughs> she, just, she didn't mean yeah. that. And, then, and so I know one thing that struck me when I first, when we first got on the call is that you said it, it's not, a, you know, wasn't like a super common enough thing that insurance is going to cover it and you had a hard time financially finding the way to do it. Um, but I love that you didn't let that stop you and that you actually just sought out other other ways and other methods. And I think there's a lesson in that. So tell us about that process and getting it, finding the people to approve it and getting it. Yeah, well, you know, I have, I have health insurance, but it's such a rare mutation that at this point there's not a lot of information available um, on it. So CDH1 was discovered just actually about 20 years ago, this mutation was. So it's brand new in terms of research. You know, historically, there's not a ton of research available on it. Um, so my insurance company was unfamiliar. And while they said, okay, we understand that you need to have this done, but you have to do it locally. And the issue I was having with that is that I live in, I live in a city, but it's a small city. Um, and we have a hospital system here, um, but there, it's not a, it's not a research center by any stretch of the imagination. It's just, you know, a small city hospital. Um, and so while there are wonderful providers here, I kept running into the issue of the fact that they didn't know anything about what I was talking about. <laughs> you know, I met with, a gastroenterologist here and I was educating him on CDH1. He had never, he had no, no familiarity with it whatsoever. It's just that uncommon, frankly. And so I didn't want to have this surgery done locally. I wanted to be able to go to a research hospital um, where they are studying this, where doctors who are more familiar with the processes and what they're looking for and what they're removing and their procedures are a little more kind of cut and dry. It's not just like going in and having gastric bypass, you know, and having a portion of your stomach removed and going on about your life. It's your entire stomach and the risk of leaving even one cell of a stomach tissue in my body pretty much guarantees <laughs> that that could then manifest into something else later. So I just didn't, I didn't feel comfortable doing it locally. And frankly, neither did the doctors that I met with. You know, I met with one surgeon who essentially said, like, I could do, he was, he was, um, you know, he did a lot of gastric bypasses and those types of surgeries. Um, so he, he was familiar enough that he said, I could do this surgery here. But if you felt more comfortable going to the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, which is the closest research facility to me where I live, um, then he would support that and he would write a letter on my behalf. My gastroenterologist um, 
said the same thing. He said, I would, I would support you going to Mayo over doing this here. There's not enough information for us locally. I would be happy to do your follow-up care, but I think it would be better if you got all of your information through them and you got your surgery done through them. Um, so they both wrote letters on my behalf. My gynecologist who initially, you know, kind of started this whole ball rolling, ironically, she wrote a letter on my behalf. The, um, genetic counselor from the company that I received my results from wrote a letter on my behalf. And every single time I just kept getting shut down by my insurance company. They denied all of my claims to move oh outside gosh. of my local area completely. And so as you, as you might imagine, you know, somebody tells you, you have to do this and you have to do this right now. And you're just coming up against all of these obstacles as far as how to, how to do it. I mean, I was seriously considering just going to Mayo Clinic getting the surgery done and then having to file medical bankruptcy afterwards. That was seriously what I was considering because it was starting to feel like there wasn't any other options for how to do it because they weren't going to cover my surgery. And so I was starting to get really frustrated. I was doing external appeals with my insurance company where they're under review from other insurance agencies in different parts of the country to determine whether or not their denial of my claim was fair or not. And that took months and months and months <laughs> to get through all of this. So as I'm working through all of this and trying to get them on my side, essentially, I keep looking for different options. And, and at one point in the summer, I had joined a, a CDH1 Facebook group. And through there, I kept seeing people talk about NIH. And at the time, I didn't know what NIH was. I think now we're all probably a little more familiar with the National Institute of Health because it's been <laughs> the news. You know, Fauci, everybody's talking about the National yes. Institute of Health um, in the past year. But two years ago, I didn't have much familiarity with it. And they were all talking about how they had been part of a study at NIH. And so I looked it up and immediately, like, was bawling in my office at my computer. So when I found the study at National Institute of Health, it was just such a huge relief to see that there was maybe some hope that I could be involved with something somewhere that was then, number one, I could be involved in a study, which would mean future research about the CDH1 mutation and hereditary diffuse gastric cancer. Um, and, you know, future treatment options other than total gastrectomy. Um, but it also meant that if I was involved in the study, if they accepted me into the study, it meant that my surgery would be paid for by the study. And so it felt kind of like this for the first time in seven months, you know, I had a little bit of hope that something was finally going in the right direction for me. And so in July of 2019, I traveled to um, the National Institute of Health. Previously, I had actually, I had opted to go to Mayo Clinic and paid out of pocket to um, meet with their team there. So I did have that solidified for me that I wanted to work with a specialized team in this. And it was a relief to talk to that team too. But when I got to NIH, it was like night and day difference as far as I just felt like a huge weight had been lifted off of my shoulders. Um, Dr. Dr. Davis, the surgeon that is in charge of the study at National Institute of Health is, this is literally all he does all day, every day <laughs> um, for the past three, almost four years. Um, this study started in 2017, I believe. And so this is all he does is he focuses on hereditary diffuse gastric cancer and CDH1 patients, and that's it. This is the only surgery he performs. This is the only, I mean, it's it. And so if you're going to go somewhere and get a good result, it just felt like this is the man I want to work with. This is the surgeon I want to work with. This is the team I want to work with. 
And the other thing that was so great about finding out about NIH, which I never would have found, I actually had looked online to try to find a study to be involved in because I knew that that would help alleviate some of the financial burden when I was having such a hard time with my insurance company. Um, and I didn't have any luck. So had I not found that that CDH1 group on Facebook, I may have not ever found out about the NIH wow. study. And so a lot of us there are involved in the NIH study. Um, it's actually the largest single study of CDH1 patients in the world. So, oh my gosh, that's amazing. And there's not very many of us involved in the study. That's what's kind of crazy. I mean, I think as of about this time last year, um, they shared a tweet that I think they had just hit 300 patients involved in the study. So they're probably still less than 500 right now. Um, Yeah, but I mean, but what a cool thing. So, yeah, so it just felt like such a huge relief to, to go there to talk to him. Um, and and then to be involved in the study there, it means I have a whole group of people that are involved in my care. Um, I have a dietitian that I work with on a regular basis. I have, you know, a, a PA that checks in with me fairly regularly, even up till now. The the follow up care there is very different than it would be if you were to just have the surgery somewhere else, even Mayo Clinic, because they're not necessarily doing the research there, um, so they're not. They want to make sure that you recover and are healthy afterwards, and then that's kind of like the end of your involvement with them. Where at NIH, this is now like pretty much a lifetime partnership for me. Um, they want to follow what my life looks like from here on out. Um, what is my recovery? How is my recovery been? How does this impact my life five, ten years down the road? Um, you know, there's all of these different kinds of things that that they're looking for as well, and it's made the overall care much more holistic and. Um, so it's just been a huge, it was a huge blessing finding finding the National Institute of Health and being accepted into that study and being able to get my surgery done out there um, in Bethesda. It was just like, it was, I, I came home from that first meeting with them in that July and just thought, I can finally breathe for the first time. <laughs> like the Oh, amazing. Um, because I had just been so focused on trying to get to the next step, and I felt like I finally had some forward movement. And so while I still had, um, you know, all of my medical bills to cover from as far as, you know, all of the endoscopies that I had done and some of the different scans, I had CT scans and different things like that done locally, um, I still had all of that, and frankly, I'm still paying that off. Um, but <laughs> it meant that I was not at the point. <laughs> I was not going to have to choose um, bankruptcy to, or in order to save my life, <laughs> you know what I mean, or, sure. or, or whatever sure. it might be, or keep, or keep fighting and keep waiting and hope that nothing bad happens in the meantime. And so um, that was just like the biggest, obviously the biggest sense of relief you could imagine. And it's so frustrating. There's so many things I could say about, you know, the health insurance system in our country and how broken it is, um, but that it's not it doesn't feel very patient centered at this point, obviously their, their goal is to save as much money as possible, which kind of puts you in a really hard position as a patient where you're, you're thinking, or at least me in my case, I'm thinking like, I can't stop fighting this. It's literally life or death for me. Like I can't just give up and say, Oh, well, I guess I'm not going to worry about this because chances are I don't have as much time to sit around and try to figure it out or hope for the best or, well, next year I'll switch to a different insurance company. I don't have the time to do that. Um, it's not on my side. And so um, the the study took the weight of all of that responsibility off of my shoulders, which was amazing. And then also, like I said, obviously, just being involved in 
and the study gave me this whole group of people, this whole clinical team that this is all they're focusing on. And so the care I received there is so different than the care I would have received anywhere else. Gosh, what an amazing thing to be a part of. And I know that when we spoke earlier, you were kind of joking about, you know, like you and your, your friends that you found on social media, you'll, you'll tell like stomach jokes that nobody else will get, but you're like, I'm surrounded by these people. And so it feels kind of somewhat normal to me now. And I think yeah, that is so yeah. cool. the power of social media is just amazing. Yeah. I haven't had a stomach now for 14 months and I spend a lot of my time online talking to other people that don't have stomachs either. So we sort of just forget <laughs> that it's weird. You know what I mean? And so I'll say something yeah, casually to somebody at some point about not having a stomach and then I forget that that's a weird thing. And then I'll see somebody's reaction and they're like, excuse me, what? <laughs> and so it's kind of it's old news to me at this point. So I forget that it's like, it's still pretty weird to no, Most people don't know somebody without yes. a stomach. <laughs> Yes. So, okay. So I want to walk through kind of the actual procedure because I know that there has got to be so many just emotions running through this. You know, first you find out, yay, I'm in the study. This is awesome. You're so happy. And then Mm -hmm. you, you know, you go to NIH and you're in the operating room and then it's kind of scary. And then you go through recovery. And so kind of just walk us through, I guess, the emotional side of it and um, how that kind of took took its toll on you. For sure. It was um, quite the journey, <laughs> as you might imagine. For anybody going through anything similar, the, the, the most important thing I could tell you to do right away, um, if you're not already practicing, um, you know, if you don't already have some sort of mindfulness or meditation practice or something like that, and you're not already talking to a therapist, that is really the time to start doing it. So as soon as I found out about all of this stuff, I already had some pretty good practices in place as far as like, you know, how to process information in my own mind. And I had spent, that was the one good thing about the amount of time I had before my surgery. So I got accepted into the um, study in July of 2019, and I had my surgery in November of 2019. Um, So I had 11 months prior to my surgery to really process the decision that I had made. And I felt Mm -hmm. I I had been in therapy, talking through it, processing what this means, um, you know, grieving the life that I thought I would be living and, uh, you know, trying to determine what a new version of that would look like. Um, It impacted a lot of things for me personally. and, And I think that's the thing that's a little bit unfortunate sometimes when you go through something like this is, you kind of find out who your friends are. You know, I had people that really came to my corner when they found out about this, but I also had people that completely disappeared. And so that's not wow. hard to, to wrap your head around. And so you're grieving the loss of these relationships that you thought you had or what your future might look like. And, and there's just a lot of unknowns. And so not that I imagine a lot of your listeners are going to get this specific diagnosis, but I just mean like in any sort of, um, life-altering event. I think sure. I'm just like pro-therapy. I'm like, every, you got to go talk to somebody. Okay, you've got to go talk to somebody. And and that helped me be very emotionally resilient in this, um, you know, this process. It helped me keep pushing forward. And by the time I had surgery in November, I was so completely sure of what I was doing that I um, I didn't even have a meltdown before surgery, <laughs> which I, which I thought I would. Um, That's amazing. I for, 
I kept waiting for it to happen. You know, I've never, I had never had a major surgery up until this time. You know, I've had small like procedures done and um, where I've been put under, you know, like twilight anesthesia and stuff, but I'd never actually been put under. I'd never, um, I'd never had a major open surgery like this. And I, so I kept thinking, okay, I was there a few days ahead of time doing the testing and you're so busy with that that I'm like, well, I'm not going to panic yet because I'm busy checking all these other boxes, right? And then the night before I thought, oh, I'm just probably not going to be able to sleep tonight. And I slept fine. <laughs> and then that morning I got up and, you know, got got over to pre-op and got in my gown and everything. And I was like, totally fine. And I was sort of starting to think like, I'm going to freak out at some point. I don't know when it's going to happen, but I'm going to freak out <laughs> at some point. I never did. And then they were putting in my epidural and I nothing. And, and they rolled me into the theater, you know, the operating room and nothing and put me under. And I, that was it. I didn't, I didn't even so much as cry before surgery because I was so, wow. I had enough time to process the decision I'd made. I was completely sure of what I was doing. And I think when you're doing something like this, that's very important. It's important to be that sure <laughs> um, before you do it. Absolutely. And so, you know, I, I came out of surgery, I woke up and I just remember thinking like, well, now this is it. This is, this is a new beginning. I've essentially just been reborn. And so this is the start of a new version of life. And I was just grateful that I, you know, woke up and was on the other side and that I could start now moving in that direction. Um, all of this, all of this angst and this hard work and, and this, you know, trying to figure this out for the last year has paid off into this point. And now I've made this choice. And not to say that something else can't take me out, but it won't be stomach cancer. And so that was a huge relief. And I, unfortunately, had a lot of complications. <laughs> After my surgery, I ended up being in the hospital at NIH for a month. And I was very sick. And I was very sick for months um, after my surgery. And that's, it wasn't typical. It was rare. Um, I kind of joke that I should maybe start buying lottery tickets because this genetic mutation is so <laughs> rare. And then complications from surgery with Dr. Davis are incredibly rare too. And I was like, I just, I'm really good at this odd game apparently. So the rarity, um, yeah. Yeah. And so I'm so glad that I was so sure of what I was doing um, prior because I think it's really, really hard to go through a massive surgery like this that is, it takes a toll on your body. It takes a toll on your mind. And I had a really hard time for those first few months in particular, especially that month that I was in the hospital. I had, I ended up with a leak at my joint site, um, which meant where my esophagus and my small intestine were now connected there was just like a tiny microscopic leak. And so it was creating an infection. And then that infection then led to um, a collapsed lung. And, you know, it just kind of like kept manifesting in all these different ways. And it was like, we couldn't get a handle on it for a while. Um, and so if I wasn't so positive about what I was doing, that would have been even harder to get through. So I think sure. mindset when you're dealing with something like this is the most important thing you can focus on. Whoever you need in your life, reach out to them, whoever is not supporting your decision. Because I had people in my life, too, that thought I was being ridiculous for making this choice. I had people tell me that it was an overreaction to remove my stomach, oh my even though I have all, you know, I can give them all of this information and they'd say that doesn't, why would you do that? Why wouldn't you just wait and see? And I'm like, I've seen what happens. And, you know, I, I know after being in these online, I know, 
Yeah, and not only that, but I know that there are people that die in their 20s of stage 4 stomach cancer that have CDH1. This is not a guarantee that I get to live to my 50s like my mom did. It doesn't mean that I doesn't mean that I have all of this time and so it's you have to be able to be really resilient um and ask for support when you need it from the people who are willing to really be in your corner. And that's I think the only way you can get through something that was like that mentally overwhelming. So, yeah, that was how I kind of prepped for all of that. I just talked to a therapist a lot, <laughs> talked to my friends a lot, had a really good support system in my corner. Wow, that's such good advice. And I think that you're right. I think you have to have a support system and you have to know that you can reach out to people because otherwise, you know, you're kind of on your own. And I, one thing I remember when you and me first spoke is that you mentioned your mother's presence. And you even mentioned there were a few times where you felt her presence and you even had a few experiences along the way. Can you tell us a little bit about that? You know, I think anybody who has lost a parent or a grandparent or somebody that was really significant in their life kind of understands that. You just sort of you feel them at different points in time. And my mom and I had a really close relationship when she was alive. And so um, it was obviously devastating to me when she died. Um, and I was so grateful that I was able to spend so much time with her as she went through her treatments. I, I had my own business. Um, I mean, I still do, but at the time I was, I was working for myself when she was going through her treatments too. So it meant that I was able to, um, you know, prioritize my schedule as far as, spending a lot of time with her, going to all of her chemo appointments, doing all of that. And so it was it was important to me to do all of that. And I, I absolutely, after she passed away, you know, I still, I still feel her. Um, you know, she's been gone for five years now, and I still feel her pretty regularly. <laughs> um, I was speaking to an energy worker at one point in time who said she's kind of like, I said, I always feel her right here and kind of like waved behind my right shoulder. And he's like, yeah, she's, she's there. In fact, she's probably too close. She's kind of hovering. And so it was, it was funny oh my to hear that. Like she's, she's kind of always there. And um, I absolutely think that she had a hand in this information because as I mentioned earlier, you know, I tried to give you like the really short version of that, but there were so many stars <laughs> that had to align in order for me to even get this test, um, this genetic test at the beginning, and then for them to opt me into doing a full panel instead of just BRCA. I mean, there were so many things that had to happen. Um, if I had gone to my annual exam a month earlier, they hadn't started this genetic counseling yet at that point in time. So I would have missed it for an entire year until I had gone in for my next annual. And, and you know, then to have her kind of encourage me to do that and to have the genetic counselor encourage me to do the full panel. Like all of these things had to happen in order for me to get this information. And I think that was another reason that I took it so seriously right away too, because I thought, you know, somebody somewhere wants me to know about this. And this is obviously something I need to pay attention to right now. And so like, without a doubt, I think she was working some magic somewhere <laughs> in that regard. Um, but, you know, I mean, still to this day, she, she'll do weird things. Um, I was, I was telling Amanda that I had been on a road trip <laughs> and was driving through Fort Collins 
Um, and all of a sudden my Bluetooth was connected to my, you know, my car and all of a sudden my nav screen popped up and it just said calling mom. And I freaked oh out. Oh my gosh. I was parking lot. And I was like trying to end the call because I, I obviously I still have her number in my phone. Um, I can't delete it, but it's not her number anymore. <laughs> and I don't know if somebody else has that number. I don't know why my phone and my car just started calling her, but it did. Um, so weird things like that will happen from time to time where I'm like, okay, mom, I see you. Like, hello, you know. So she's she's definitely around. And um, I think knowing that gave me the strength that I needed to get through my healing process um, over the last year, which I said, like, as I said, was especially difficult in the beginning. So oh, kind of God. always around. The top. <laughs> The, pa- the power of a mama. <laughs> yep. Even, I wonder yep, if she's she still was trying to do her work. Yep. I wonder if she was messing with our phones today when we were having all those recording I... issues. Maybe she's trying to pop in. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. If so, she you could knock it off, Teresa. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> she's like, no, I'm good. Okay. I had to. Sh- I'm here now. Like you're no, not mentioning um... me enough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What kind of uh, what kind of dietary changes have you made? The way I eat now is so different from the way a dietitian would tell a normal person to eat. Um, in the sense, and it's taken me a long time to wrap my head around what that difference is like. Um, so, my I don't have any place to store food anymore. You know, there's no. It's just kind of a straight shot. Um, a and why total gastrectomy is just your esophagus is connected to your small intestine. It's just like a straight tube now, um, which means that it's really hard for me to eat very much at any one time. So I have to eat all day long, pretty much. So I eat really small portions, but all day long. Um, But that means that now my priorities for what I eat are high calorie, high protein. So it means that I'm putting like I, however many calories I I, mean, I need the most bang for my buck. <laughs> and so it means like <laughs> mashed potatoes with heavy cream and butter and, you know, like cheese, like whatever you can shove into something to get it as calorie packed um, and as protein packed as possible. So it's probably the exact opposite of what everybody else would want. And it's funny because I have friends that are like, oh, that's, that sounds great. And I'm like, you would think, but it gets a little tiresome when you're like, I just want to eat a salad or, you know, something like that. But it, <laughs> it's often not worth it. There's no point. Because I can't, there's not enough calories in it um, to make it worth my time. And it, it's hard, actually. That's the other thing that people have a hard time wrapping their head around because we all, you know, our society is focus so much around food. We do so many, we celebrate with food. We, you know, we meet friends over food and drinks and we do in normal times, we do all of that. Um, And for me, food doesn't carry the same importance that it used to. It's more tedious than anything. It's like another thing I have to do all day. Um, And so it's not like super exciting to me at this point that I just get to eat cheese all the time. Like it's, I'm kind of over it, you know? Right. (laughs) And so, yeah, I I hear you. It's, and so it's funny because especially in the beginning, um, you know, the dietitian says eat in front of the TV or play a game on your phone or something because it's not, in, it's actually not enjoyable to eat for months and months and months. And so you have to kind of distract yourself and force yourself to do it. And at the beginning, it's like literally like having a toddler go like, I can have four bites and then I can be done for two hours. Like it's quite literally <laughs> like that. And so 
Um, and so it's just funny. <clears throat> it's funny in the sense that my dietitian is telling me, watch TV, put butter on everything, heavy cream in your coffee, you know, like all of these. It's like the exact opposite of any information that either of you would get from a dietitian or a nutritionist if you were going to say, like, what do I need to do <laughs> for my Yeah, for my right you know, and it, it does sound awesome. Like, yeah, I want to eat all the things. Like, give me all the fat yeah. and protein and, you know, give me all that. But I can understand completely how after a while you're like, okay, I just want to eat. Yeah, the novelty is worn you know, off. I'd love to, yeah, yeah. I just love a big, like, the things that I miss most about eating before surgery are I would love to eat, like, a big salad, you know, like, tons of veggies in it. And um, being able to just, like, chug a glass of water. Like, oh, either of those things. Mm -hmm. What is one of the weirdest questions somebody's ever asked you? Like, do you ever get some really off-the-wall questions that you're like, what? Do you ever get any Yeah, I do. (laughs) Yeah. Um, The strangest thing I think I've ever been asked is if I had a pig stomach, Um, which (laughs) I was like, what? No, I don't. I don't have anything. Because, like, people just can't, much like we were talking about at the beginning of the call, like, people can't wrap their head around like, what do you mean that you don't have a stomach? So a lot of times people will say, well, you have some stomach. You just don't have, and no, I don't have any stomach. It's gone. The whole thing is gone. Um, and they can't wrap their head around that. And so I've been asked by a couple of different people if I had a pig stomach, because I think I could be wrong about this, but I think like pigs are like genetically similar enough to humans that they can use um, components, I think, of pig hearts, like some valves or something in, in heart surgeries. And so it's not so out of the realm of possibility, I guess, that somebody would think that if they know somebody who had some sort of valve replacement that may be involved with it. I think, I don't know, it's somehow related to the heart. But I don't have a pig stomach. That's not a thing. I don't have a stomach. Well, that's good to know. Um, <clears throat> yeah, they it's too complicated. Actually, that would be much more dangerous and the healing would be harder um, to do. So like if you were to get a transplant, if you get a transplant of any organ, you're then on anti-rejection medications for the rest of your life. So then I'd be on medications to not reject my new like donor stomach or something like that. So it actually ends up being much more complicated as far as recovery goes rather mm-hmm. than just not having one at all. Um and so who knows what, what the options will look like in the future. But as of right now, the option is just to not have anything, um, which is what I have. We've just got, like I said, it's just a long tube and that's it. Um, eventually over time, my small intestine will develop a little, a small pouch. So I'll be able to eat a little bit more as time goes on over the next coming years. I'll gradually be able to eat more and more. It'll never be like how anybody else eats. So I'll still have to eat frequently. Right. Um, throughout the day, but it'll be more like if you know anybody who has had some sort of bariatric surgery for weight loss and how they eat smaller portions, um, I can probably work up to the level they eat at at some point when they still have a small portion of their stomach left. So, but that's it. People have a really hard time accepting that I just don't have one. <laughs> so they try to figure out what else it could possibly be instead. So that's definitely oh my a gosh, question it's so crazy. I mean, one of those things that you would never think of until somebody asks it, and you're like, huh, well, let me look into it. Yeah. I have no idea. <laughs> I was like, what? No, I don't but, have a pig stomach. Yeah, that's how I found out about the heart thing. I was like, why would they think that? So, and then you Google it. <laughs> yep. Well, I'm like, I guess that's kind of the thing. But Oh, my gosh, how funny. Well, Krista, you are, I mean, seriously, you are a true warrior. I am so honored to know you. You are such an amazing person. I wish everybody in real life could know you because you're just so amazing. 
Um, but I want to know where can our audience find resources to either get more information about this, um, donate to your cause, all that good stuff. Yeah, so I um, my blog is called Reverie Rising, and um, there is where I've shared my whole story, and it's been a challenge sharing that story. It feels really vulnerable <laughs> to put it all out there, but I just keep thinking about the person I was in early 2019 and how I was looking for somebody to show me what this process was going to look like, and I wanted to see somebody on the other side of it and see that, that there was some hope to getting there and that life could be normal again afterwards. So it's important to me to share that story online. And so if people are interested in checking that out, they can they can go to the blog and read all of the updates up until surgery. Um, I'm actually getting ready to do a, like a frequently asked questions post <laughs> about stuff like that, like what, what kind of things people ask me the most often um, to get them all in one spot. And I'll probably be up before your podcast is shared so that might be available to them as well um i'm on instagram at reverie rising as well there's some stuff on there i focus mostly on being stomachless on both of those places and um so there's some stuff on there that you know doesn't necessarily make it to the blog just little like snapshots of life um so they can follow along at either of those places if they're looking for more resources or information on um CDH1 or stomach cancer in general, I would highly recommend checking out the organization No Stomach for Cancer. Um, there's tons and tons of resources available there. Um, Advocacy Day for Stomach Cancer Awareness is actually next month. It's in February. And so um, I'm getting ready to sign up to actually advocate and speak to my, my state's representatives um, next month about the need to advocate for stomach cancer research and awareness. Um, and, you know, we'll hopefully we'll keep finding funding for these kinds of studies. And so the hope is that at some point down the line um, through the NIH study or through other, other funded studies, um, we can come up with better ways to prevent hereditary diffuse gastric cancer rather than just total gastrectomy. Um, you know, is there a way to suppress it? in the meantime or something else. Um, so I'm obviously a huge advocate for that at this point in my life and yes. probably will be from this point on out. So those are some really great resources. And as far as, you know, um, just something to share, this is obviously very rare. Like I said, I, I can't imagine there would even be any of your listeners that, that should necessarily be concerned that they have CDH1. It's, it's an incredibly rare genetic mutation. Um, but I, the lesson I would want to kind of leave everybody with is to be your own advocate um, when it matters. And so especially in terms of things that are medical, nobody else, unfortunately, is going to do it for you. So if that means you have to fight with an insurance company, if it means that you have to jump through some hoops, you need to be the squeaky wheel and you need to be your own advocate because your life truly depends on it. Um, so that I think is the biggest lesson I could leave with everybody. So no matter what challenge they might face, because like I said, chances are they're not all going to be hereditary diffuse gastric cancer. <laughs> so, um, but there's a lot of other, you know, challenges that we face in life. And in those instances, the best thing you can do is just be your own advocate. Wow. And, and also you're just inspiration and there's no telling how many people that you're going to save in the future, even though it's rare, it's out there, and at least you're bringing awareness to it. And I guess it also just goes to show you that no matter what your journey is or how 
might think it is, you don't know who you're going to touch down the line. And so we thank you for coming on and talking with us. Y'all go give Carissa a follow. Um, she's a and um, I just can't thank you enough for being on, Carissa. Yeah, thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. Bye, Carissa. Bye, Bye Carissa. Bye. Oh my gosh, wasn't that amazing? I mean, talk about a superhero of a person. There's just so many emotions that go into this from the excitement of realizing it can be done to the pain of the recovery to now finally, you know, just sort of that resting phase where you know that it's gone and it's completed and, um, I mean, you're alive, you're thriving. I just think her story is so amazing. Yeah, I went through all of the roller coaster of emotions um, throughout the entire thing. I know the listeners did as well. I want to thank y'all so much for listening. I truly think that Carissa is just an amazing person, and I know by now you agree. Please follow her on all Instagram and social media pages. You guys will need to find her blog. It's amazing. It really goes a little bit more in depth in the detail of her experience. So follow her. We're going to have those posted on our social media. And and guys, if you can, please make sure to review us. If you're listening on iTunes podcast um, or Google Play, please give us a listen and send us a review. Let us know what you think about it and get in touch with us as well. Yes, thank you guys so much for listening. Be sure to find us on social media. We post some really fun stuff that comes along with these episodes. We're also going to be posting, like we said, our husbands when they were little, and that's probably something you don't want to miss. <laughs> but thank you guys again for listening. And we're your hosts, Amy and Amanda. We're going to catch you next week. And remember, guys, a good podcast should be like a woman's skirt, long enough to cover the subject, but short enough to create interest. Bye. Bye.